You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. As one from the city of Philadelphia, this has actually nothing to do with football, um, one of our sports heroes is Rocky. And now I know you think he's not real, but he really is. Um, we don't have enough winners in Philly, so we celebrate fake winners, okay? So just bear with me. And so if you've seen the Rocky movies, you know, they're, except for Rocky V, which we don't really talk about that one, but all the rest are this great underdog story, right, where the people's champion, just the regular guy, goes up against unsurmountable odds and wins the fight every time. And so in Rocky IV, which is, you know, one of my favorites as a child of the 80s, 1985, you know, Cold War, in the middle of the Cold War. So what happens, if you've never seen it, is, is Rocky's buddy Apollo goes up and he fights this big Russian. And the Russian kills him, right? Uh, and so Rocky, of course, has to kind of come out of retirement, go get revenge. And so he goes to Russia and lives in kind of this, what is like this snow cabin. And, you know, the first thing he does when he gets there is he puts this picture of Ivan Drago on the mirror, Right? And so that every day when he wakes up, what does he see? Ivan Drago. You know, and then he kind of half-heartedly trains because Adrian's not there. But then Adrian shows up, of course. And then all of a sudden the music comes on. Hearts on fire. You know, he's lifting rocks and he's running through the mountains and he's doing all these great things. And he's looking at that picture of Ivan. And finally at the end of the training montage, he just grinds that picture and he crinkles it up. That photo has been driving him to lift rocks and carry all these things and do all these weird things. And when the guy's punching him, it's like, no pain, no pain, no pain. You know, and it's just that picture in front of him drives him. It motivates him, right? As Christians, what is it that drives us? What is that picture on the mirror that makes us, that propels us to do what God's called us to do? As we continue in this series, we're, we're going to see in, in 1 Timothy, the rest of chapter 1, what's Paul's picture on the mirror. What propels him, what drives him to do what he does, right? And, 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 and in doing so, we'll find out what can and what should drive us as believers. So if you have a Bible, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, and let me just encourage you. I know we put it on the screen, and that's great. That's for those of you who maybe be new. If you have a Bible, please bring your Bible. And follow along, because what we want you to do is we want you reading it during the week. We want you to get used to your Bible. If you don't have one, you can take the one home that's in front of you, or we'll go buy you one. But just, if, you know, and if yours is on your phone, great, that's fine too. All right? But, but we just want to be a people that are equipped in our Bibles, right? And so write in it, you know, mark it up, do whatever you're going to do. First um, Timothy 1. And we started this series, we called it House Rules. The reason we called it House Rules is because the key verse is in chapter 3, where Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so he's giving, remember kind of what's going on. They're both in Ephesus, this kind of New York City of the day. Timothy is kind of a country bumpkin. He's from Bloomingdale, but he's pastor in this big church in New York City. And it's kind of, he's in the deep end of the pool. Right, Because it's a, it's a very educated city, and it's just a very wicked city, and open-minded in all these different areas, and there's some conflict in the church, and all of a sudden, Paul has to leave and go to Macedonia, and so now we have this young dude who struggles with timidity. He's actually a little sickly. We're going to find out in 2 Timothy, he's kind of got a weak stomach, and Paul is writing this letter to encourage him and say, okay, here, here 
just do this. This is how, teach people, this is how it works in the family. This is, this is the house rules. And so last week we saw house rule number one is that, that we need truth that produces love. That Paul says, shut these false teachers down. They're producing conflict and division and anger and all these things. And that's not what we're about. We're about truth that produces love. An internal change that makes us more like Jesus. And, and as we pick up in chapter 12, he's just going to continue his kind of opening remarks. I mean, in, in verse 12. And it's really just, he's going to share what is that, that picture on the mirror for the apostle. That Ivan Drago. Drago! Right? All right. So let's jump in. And, and we'll see rule number two. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The Greek text is super emphatic here. You can write in a certain way in the Greek language to make things like with an explanation point or underline it. And it's by putting something up front. So he really says, thanks I have. It's very Yoda, but it's good, good theology. He's like, Thanks I have. I am, I am super thankful. I am super grateful to, to Christ. Why? Because he judged me faithful and he appointed me to his service. And here's the thing. I wasn't faithful. I, I, I wasn't faithful. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I blasphemed, I slandered the name of Jesus, I denied the name of Jesus, I lied about Jesus, I wanted nothing to do with Jesus, that's who I was. I was a persecutor, I used to go into people's houses and I would take their daddy away and the kids would be crying and the moms would be crying and I would take their father away and I would throw him in prison and then I would have this guy stoned named Stephen. That is what I did to people who said they loved Jesus and I was an insolent opponent, I hated him. I hated his people. I thought I was doing God's will. I thought I was doing good, but I wasn't. So but he's thankful that that's, the, that's who he was, but God appointed him to his service. Why? He says, because I received mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I was literally, I was mercied, is the way the text reads. And the idea of mercy is you don't get what you do deserve. That's mercy. And, and implicit in someone showing mercy is there is an offender and an offended. Right? Paul was the offender. This is what I did. And God didn't give me what I deserve. What did he deserve? He deserved wrath. When he's riding to Damascus and Jesus shows up, what Paul deserved was his, to, like, to melt his brain. That's what he deserved. But God did not do that. And not only did he show him mercy, it says, I receive grace. The grace of our Lord overflowed. This word overflowed, it's a super cool word. Paul invented it. He takes the word for overflowed and he puts like a, 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 a prefix on it, which means like super overflowed. So he makes up his own word to describe how, how much grace God showed him. It was overflowing. I got super overflowed grace on me. A grace is, is kind of similar to mercy, but it's, it's a little bit different. Where mercy is, I don't get what I deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. So I didn't get wrath, and I did get mercy and grace and I'm appointed to God's service. Not only did he, he not destroy me, he actually put me on his team. I was on the other team fighting against his team. He took me off the enemy's team. He put me on his own team. And he put me in the game. 
She, so he's, he's just thankful for all these things, the mercy and the grace that overflowed in his life that he got in Christ. And here's what you got to remember. Paul has been a Christian at this point for about 30 years. Okay, he's not like a newbie. He's been saved for about 30 years. So he's kind of a, he's a pretty mature Christian at this point. But yet, it's like it happened yesterday. It's just fresh. Right? Here's, here's, what's, here's what's challenging for us as Christians sometimes. More so for those who have been saved for a longer time. It's hard when you've been in the faith for a while to remember all that you have been given. That, that one thing, that thing that you were void of at one point, and now you have, it's, it's easy to get used to that, isn't it? It's easy. And what we need to do is, as Christians is find a way to remember constantly. I've told you some of you before. So I, when I was in seminary, we had two kids at the time, and I made $2,100 a month, and I got that paycheck on the first of the month, and that had to last the entire month. That's before health insurance, mortgage, tithe, everything, right? And, and, and it didn't last. But on every 21st of the month, the Ostrander family, a family from Beaufort, they would send me a money order for $125, and I would be waiting at the mailbox every 21st. I don't know the, how they got it, in the, you know, every time it was the 21st it got there. And I would go and I'd grab that, and that $125 would, would be our lifeline until the next month. I mean, we could, we could go to Walmart now. Honey, I could put gas in the car. I can go to seminary tomorrow. We got gas and we got food. That $125 was life to us. But here's the thing. Now, four kids, two teenagers, driving, all these things. $125, that's like a, a trip to, to McDonald's <laughs> and church, and it's gone. I mean, that, it can be gone like that. Milkshakes, whatever. $125 now is like, it's just not the same. Now, if you say, hey, I want to give you $125, I'll, I'll be very, very thankful. But it, it doesn't fill my soul like it did back then. Back then, it was life. And now it's like, man, it's nice. And, and what we need to do is it's easy to forget that which we were void of, especially those of you who have been Christians for a little bit longer. And we need to cultivate in our, in, our, in our disciplines and in our life gratefulness and thankfulness for what we were and what we are. And that's why we celebrate the table. That's one, one of the ways we do that, and we're going to do it today, is we remind ourselves of what we have in the gospel. Verse 15, let's move on. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's his way of saying this is true. Some say it's an early creed or an early catechism. We don't know for sure, but he's saying this is absolute truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Not to be a good dude, not just to heal people, not to be a good example for people. He came with one purpose. We sang about it. He set his, his, his eyes on the cross. He came to save sinners. And then he makes this great statement, of whom I am the foremost. I am the worst. And notice the tense, guys. It's not I was the worst. It's I am. Present tense. Right now. 30 years into this deal. Right? I'm the worst. Don't misunderstand Paul here. He's not struggling with low self-esteem. 
He's not, you know, doesn't have confidence issues. It's not a false pride that he's trying to kind of make people feel bad about himself. And he's not really comparing himself ultimately to others. Because certainly we could say, yeah, Paul, you did some bad things, but there's been some guys that are probably a little worse than you. Yeah, you got the Hitlers of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Tom Brady's of the world. These are wicked people. <laughs> I mean, these are evil, evil men, right? Just a side note, if, you, if you're a Tom Brady fan, I don't know if you're a Christian. Okay, that's, anyway, it, it's not that Paul is saying, well, I'm worse than Hitler. It's not that he's saying, I'm good, you're bad. He, he's not comparing himself to others. But I think the idea here is, when you look at God, when you look at Christ, and you just, you're looking at him compared to him and his holiness, I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. I'm the chief. Because there's, there's no comparison. It's not about comparing horizontally. It's about comparing vertically. Yeah, you can look at, oh, I'm better than that, which is not what we're supposed to do. But you compare yourself to Jesus. And when you do, he says, I'm, I'm the biggest sinner. But again, verse 16. But, circle that in your Bibles, I receive mercy. That's the second time he said that. For this reason, that in me, that is the foremost. Again, that's the second time he said that. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He says, I receive mercy as the foremost. And here's why. So that Jesus, it's really not even about Paul. It's, it's bigger than Paul. That God is doing something bigger than just us. It's, it's, it's about Christ. That Because God's mercy on me is an example to everyone else. And the point is, if God can save me, then he can save anybody the chaos that I cause with my life and the hurt that I cause and the destruction that I cause. He said, if God can do this in me and now appoint me to his service, if he can even redeem that, then my story can have an influence and an impact on other people's stories. And that is the point. And, and what you see here, and what kind of he keeps alluding to it, he keeps even mentioning it, is what is Paul's motivation? What is it that drives him? What is that Ivan Drago on the mirror? It's the mercy of God. And, and here's kind of rule number two for us as a church now. We looked at truth that produces love. We want mercy that motivates, that drives, that propels, right? And, and understand, Paul, this is not Paul just being depressed and weighed down and, oh, was such a bad guy. Does he seem depressed about what he was or does he seem invigorated? I was this, now I'm this. Right? And certainly he has regret. But it's not, oh, he's not this Eeyore Christian sitting there sobbing all day long about how it could have been and what it should have been. He said, no, look what God has done. And, and we need to get that understanding of the gospel in this church that, yes, you were this. We all were this. Okay, we've established that. But what are we now in Christ Right? That, that he's invigorated. It, it drives him. He's not weighed down. And, and I know there's some of you out there, because we, we talk to y'all, we counsel, we do all these things, that you are weighed down and crippled with guilt. And, and, but yeah, but I did X, and this is what happened in my life. And, and ultimately, that, you know what that is? You may not know it. It's actually pride. Because here's the question you got to ask. Is there something that you can do that's so bad that God cannot 
fix it? Is there a way in which you can be more powerful than God, that you're so powerful that you can actually limit the scope of Jesus' death? That there's something that you can do that you can overcome the power of God? Is that, is that a reality? I mean, is there something that is so great that you have done that the death of Jesus is not sufficient? That God is going to send his perfect son to absorb the, his own wrath, but, but, you know, Bill Fowler down there did one thing that Jesus just couldn't cover that. And when we are just crippled as Christians with, oh, and way down, that's, that's, not, that's not the spirit of God. I think that's, that's the enemy trying to whisper in your ear and remind you, yeah, but you are, but you are, but you this. Don't you remember, Right? And I, we see it all the time, especially in the areas, two big areas that, that I've seen just in my short time is in the area of sexual sin, right? And here's a biggie, is, is when, when there's been an abortion, whether it's uh, the guy or the girl, huge guilt, right? And we have it all over. And, and the question is, has God, can God really forgive that? Can God really heal from that and, and Paul is saying, and his story for us is powerful because he's saying, this is what I was, and this is what I am. And y'all, the scripture is filled with some, some broken people that, that messed up royally that God redeems. You, you start with Paul. You can go to Zacchaeus. We looked at him in the last book we studied. Stealing from his own people, starving his own people so that he can get rich. Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked dude. He killed the many Jews and many people. He was a wicked, wicked man. And he becomes a follower of God. Rahab the harlot. Enough said. She can't even get the title out, even in the New Testament. Right? Jonah. Here's the man of God who basically says to God, I'm not going to do what you say. In fact, I'm going to go and do the other thing. And he runs away from God. He knows exactly what God's called him to do, and he blows him off. Gideon is a weak sauce man. He's all like, I can't do it, I can't do it, right? God shows him miracles, he's still a wimp. Moses thinks he's so good that he can go do things on his own, so God has to send him to the desert for 40 years. And even then he doesn't want to do it. John Mark abandons Paul in his greatest need, goes home to mama, ends up writing a gospel. I mean, this is what the gospel does. I was this, through Christ's grace, giving me what I don't deserve, his mercy, not giving me what I do deserve, I am this, right? And Paul is not weighed down, woe is me, he's invigorated, he is propelled, so much so that he just busts out into worship now. It's like he's talking about one thing, and all of a sudden, and, and I do this all the time, my wife's like, hey, wait, wait, how did you just jump back to like three days ago conversation, and you didn't even like, you know... He's like talking about this, and all of a sudden he just busts out. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory and ever. He cannot talk about what God has done and all he has done in his life without just worshiping. Can't even talk about it. Thinking about who God is and what he has done. And he gives this just rich, doctrinal, theological prayer. Right? He calls God immortal. Like he's eternal. He's invisible. You can't see him. He's clearly talking about God the Father here. Uh, he's the only God. 
Again, for those who say, well, the Bible is just one way to heaven. Well, the Bible says it's not just one way to heaven. The Bible says there's one true God, and you'll see that again next week. But he says he's the only God. Right? And the idea here is if God is immortal, he is eternal. He, he stands outside of creation. If he's invisible, if he's almighty, if he's the only God, how is it he would show grace and mercy to me when I was so opposed to him? And he's just blown away by it. 30 years after he came to faith. So he says, be honor and glory forever and ever to this king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And I know there's a lot of deep, rich kind of theology. And some of you are in that camp. You're like, well, I don't like theology. Just give me the practical. And I hear you. That's kind of how I roll a lot. And, and, but, but what you have to understand is the, the theological drives the practical. Right? It always does. So if you say, go home and love your wife. Well, great. That's very, that's very practical. But where is that rooted? You love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's your theology that drives it. Go be kind. Forgive people. That's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, why do we do that? Because Christ forgave us. God in Christ has forgiven us. Go be a servant. Why do we do that? Because God sent his son to serve. Be generous. Why do we do that? Because, because God is generous. It's always linked to the theological. So I know those of you are like, ah, oh, don't give me theology. Just give me. Well, it's, they're, they're inseparable. And I'm not saying we stay over here in the theological. This drives this. And so Paul is, is worshiping because he sees God for his greatness. And then he's very practical in the outflowing of it. Right? And then he just jumps kind of right back into his thing. So he's worshiped. And he jumps back in. And he actually jumps back into his prior conversation with Timothy. Prior to actually verse Verse 12. He's going to wrap in the, the whole point up. It says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. What charge? The drive these false teacher guys. Get rid of these false teacher guys. I, charge, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So you have this really weird, kind of unique statement that we don't really have any background of, right? Timothy obviously knows what he's talking about. We have no clue. We weren't there. But apparently there was some sort of prophecies, plural, made about Timothy at some point. When, where, we don't know. Laying on, when he was, when he was kind of ordained in the ministry, some suggest. Uh, here's what you have. Some of you, when you hear prophecy, you think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, right? And that is certainly one type of prophecy we see in the scripture. Another role seemed to be in the early church before they had the New Testament canon completed, uh, where someone would stand up in the church service, right, and, and would basically say, I have a word from the Lord. And they would kind of say their word from the Lord, and then the rest of the church would come around and be like, they'd evaluate it based on what they did know from the scripture, and they would kind of get together and say, yes, that, is, that was from God, or no, that is not from God. It is, it's a different type of prophecy that you see in the Old Testament. Old Testament prophets... If you were wrong one time, you were stoned, period. So basically, all my football predictions, I would not be here anymore. <laughs> I am predicting, just some of you, you know, you figure, I've been wrong every time so far, so I am predicting that the New England Patriots will win the Super Bowl. <laughs> A little reverse psychology right there for you, right? So if I'm right, then I was smart. If not, then I'm happy. Either way, I win. But, 
but the, the idea of prophecy in the New Testament is a little bit different than that. And so, because again, they didn't have a New Testament scripture written. And so they were getting together in these homes and God would kind of give a, a word of knowledge or something. And so they would have to evaluate. And there's this big debate kind of with theologians, and I'm not going to go into the depths of it, but, but is this still relevant? Is this kind of thing still happening? You know, is this what, you know, kind of, and so and you, you can kind of read all about it. And certainly there is crazy, wacky abuses on this. Like people saying, well, you're going to go next week and you're going to buy a cow or something, you know, kind of ridiculous, right? Um, where I stand on it is, it, is it still possible for it to happen? I absolutely believe it is. Just I, when I first started ministry, I say, nope. But then I've kind of actually lived for the last 11 years and I've kind of seen some stuff and, and heard some stuff. Um, now, it always has to be evaluated with scripture, but let me give you two examples. One not for me, one for me. One, I was reading just this week a uh, blog post about Spurgeon, written by Alistair Begg, and uh, somebody on, when, when Spurgeon was 10 years old, best preacher probably in the last 200 years, uh, came up to young Spurgeon before he wanted to be a preacher and said, you are going to preach before thousands in your life. That happened before he was 21. Where, how do you... Is that just a good guess? I don't know. I have no clue. In my own personal life, I go back to uh, when I was a 28-year-old dude. We felt like God was calling our family to seminary. And I was teaching at a high school Bible study, about 80 students. And there was a sweet older lady uh, named Marlette Stansel. And at the end, I told some of you this before, probably many times, but this is a Ebenezer in my life, and that's why. Um, you know, I taught the lesson. After the lesson, she wrote me this sweet note. And it just basically said, God has gifted you to teach. He's going to use your teaching gift to do great things for him. And that letter, you know, you may say, well, that's not really prophetic. That's just being very nice. Maybe so. I, great. But what, when I go back to that, when I was about to move to Dallas, Texas, where I knew nobody, into the home of the Dallas Cowboys, who I despise, <laughs> to go pay for forty, fifty thousand $50,000 worth of seminary, which I didn't have, to get a job. I mean, all these challenges, that little letter, man, okay, God's going to do something. And for Timothy, I don't know what these prophecies were, but when Paul says, remember that day when we were praying for you and when someone gave you a word that you're going to do this and you're going to, remember that day. Why? Because you're going to have to fight the good warfare. Does warfare imply easy or hard? Hard, right? It's a battle. So when, you, when you're in the middle of the trenches, Timothy, and you feel like quitting, remember what God said. And it's hugely encouraging. To me, because let me, transparency, there is many times that I've wanted to quit this job. Not because I don't love you, but because, and it's not even really because of me, because the toll of this job that it takes on not just me, but my family let me tell you, that's because what they don't tell you in seminary, and you can ask David, and you can ask all the guys on staff, they don't tell you this in seminary, that it's going to be harder for your spouse and your kids than for you. Because you know why? And I'm not, I'm not calling anybody out, please don't think I'm you, but because if there's no crackers in the nursery, guess who finds out first? Our wives. As if, oh, they're over the cracker ministry now. If someone, if, you know, if someone did this and this, well, you know, but our wives, guess what? Just say, none of our wives work here. They all work at home with our kids. They're normal people like you. And believe it or not, 
Just when you see them at Walmart, I'm just kind of giving you an encouragement. They don't want to talk about church. <laughs> Believe it or I mean, it's a miracle, right? They really don't want to hear about the sermon, and they don't want to talk about they They probably don't, okay? Just letting you know. We don't just like sit around the table thinking, what songs should we sing on Sunday? You know, what's, we just don't. I, so that has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just telling you the reality of the ministry and when you're moving into people's lives and what they don't tell you. It's, it's difficult. And he's saying, hey, just remember the truth. Go back to what was said about you. Go back to what? Just do these things. Fight the good fight. Battle the battle. Right? And he goes on. Holding the faith in a good conscience. Why? Because when you reject this, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he calls two guys out that did this. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Right? We think that these are two guys that are mentioned later uh, in, in Timothy as well. Alexander the coppersmith, Hymenaeus. We don't know for sure because he doesn't give last names. But two guys who shipwrecked their faith. It's probably two guys that Paul was dealing with when he was in Ephesus. And he kept going to them and said, dudes, you've got to stop teaching this junk. And they would not listen. So he says, I've handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What is that? And you can read all the commentaries. You know, some people say that this is something only apostles could do. What, what my best understanding is, is this is the early form of church discipline where they were cast out of the church into the realm of Satan, so to speak, out there. Right? He's the prince of the power of the air. And there's something about being a part of the local fellowship that there's a spiritual protection of you. And so Paul says, remove them from that spiritual protection, put them out in the world. The goal is for them to repent and to come back. It's for them to stop blaspheming God, stop, start submitting to the scripture, and, and, and come back to the fold. All right? that, that's the idea here. It's not punitive, it's restorative. He wants them back. And Paul obviously would have went to these guys numerous times and said, stop, 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 stop. And he eventually says, you guys can't be here anymore because you're not submitting to the truth of scripture. And, and I know that that seems, for some of you, very unloving. That seems very harsh. We have truth that produces love, right? It's actually one of the most loving things you can do, that when you hold to the truth of Scripture, call people away from destruction, not only to themselves but their families, it is a loving thing. Love does not mean embrace rebellion. Okay? Just understand. You can be loving, but love is not embracing rebellion. That is a perversion of what love is. If we're going to have the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in a couple weeks. I'm not super excited about Winter Olympics. I'm not a big skater fan, and we never win anything. So anyway, ice dancing is not my jam. But if we find out, like we have in the past, that the Russian ice dancers are all doped up on steroids, but they win the gold medal, what are they going to do? They're going to strip them of their gold medal, and they're going to say, you're out of this ice dancing deal for three years. Why? Because winning is at all costs is not the ultimate goal. It's a, winning, but yet cheating, is a perversion of winning. And so we're going to remove that. And that's what Paul is saying. It's, it's not that we don't love the sinner, but we're just not going to say, yeah, it's okay for you to go do this and do that and do this and do that. It's no big deal because we're whatever. It's a perversion of love. Love says, this is going to blow your family up, dude, if you don't stop working 90 hours a week. This, this you marrying that dude is not going to be... Go where you think it is. This addiction, this alcohol, this whatever, it's going to destroy you. We're going to call you out of that. You can't just leave your spouse because you're not happy. Right? And say, yeah, I'm going to go follow Jesus over there. The following Jesus isn't here. 
And so that's the idea of what he's doing there. And love, again, seek, we said it last week, love seeks the best of others, which means sometimes it's calling people back from about to jump off a cliff. Right? And so he's saying, you got to move this way. You got to do this way. Right? Keep the faith. Stay strong. And for him, back to our rule, mercy motivates me and let it motivate you. Right? Let it be that Ivan Drago. Let me give you a couple thoughts as we kind of move to worship and just kind of reflecting about how mercy should motivate. And you can write these down, talk about them in your community groups, talk about them with your spouse, your roommates, um, wherever you're at in community. Mercy, number one, should motivate us as a church to tell our story. Your story, whether it's vanilla or, or cookies and cream, is a powerful thing. Right? The way, here, here's what we got to understand as a church. I know it's a little bit, from, a little bit different from some of how you, you think. The church is not built from like king to subjects. It's not, you know, it was with the disciples, but the, the church grows organically from subject to subject to subject to subject to subject. That, that's how it works. It's not God shows up and, you know, in a vision and this guy gets converted. It's the body who leads the body who leads other people. It's, it spreads through us. And your story is one of the most powerful and unique ways that God brings people to faith. Just like Paul's. And Paul, just like Paul's is used, God wants to use your story, whatever it is, to reach others and to encourage others and to be an example. It, it's a, it's, it, that personal story is huge. Right? And God has given you each a unique story. And, and they want to know what it is. It's, you were this, you were this. It's powerful. Right? It's like, when you go to the doctor, when I go to the doctor, and I don't want to hear, well, you have this issue, and we have we got three options. You can do A, B, or C. What I want to know is, what's the best option? I don't want to hear, well, the studies show that this is this, and you know, statistics show this or this. What I want to know, doc, if you were me, what would you do? Oh, I would do B. Well, then I'm going to do B. Because if you feel strongly enough B for yourself, then I'm going to do B. It's Because it's personal. It's powerful. Pete, you have this story of redemption if you're a Christian. And maybe your story is super like, well, I was eight, and my parents kept telling me about Christ, and I trusted Christ, and now X. Maybe it's, it's not exciting. It's not going to get you on TV, but it's a great story. And someone can relate to that. Right? I, I cannot tell you over my 11 years here how many times my story of growing up in the church, not understanding the gospel, going wayward and doing this, having my eyes open to the gospel, how many times I've been able to share that story and how it's related to a bunch of dudes that are just like, yeah, that's me. It's my unique deal, but I'm able to be an example of foul mouth fowler, pastor. Right? Not great pastor, but pastor. Herald of the gospel. Yours is the same way. That's, that's how this deal grows. That's how the gospel has spread for 2,000 years. And so you got to say and ask the question, as a member of the church who is com- com- obeying the Great Commission, how are you using your story? Who are you looking for to tell your story? And it doesn't have to be... You know, you don't have to be super articulate. It's, this is what I was. This is what Jesus did. This is who I am now. And please don't say, this is who I am now. Now I'm an angel from God. 
Don't ever tell people. People can't relate to, I don't ever sin anymore, and I have a perfect family because of Jesus, and now I'm rich and all those things. Don't tell that story. That's not the real story. But, you know, and I know there's some, oh, I don't know all the answers, and I, you know, I need to study my apologetics and creation evolution and blah, 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 blah. You know, those things are all fine. That is not how the gospel is spread. And you're never going to have all the answers anyway. All you got to know, who you were, what did Jesus do, what is the gospel? The gospel is Christ died for sins and rose again. That is the gospel. Right? I was a sinner. Christ took my place. He rose again. Now he's forgiven me and I'm living my life for him. Right? This is, this is you, you got to be willing and looking for opportunities to share your story. Right? You got to be. Second thing, mercy. Mercy motivates in conflict. It's a biggie. We need a constant flow of mercy and redemption in our conflicts and our relationships. And here's the key for conflict, right? And you guys are going to take marriage class, some of you, in a few weeks. All of us have conflict unless you live by yourself and never see anybody else, which is not what you do because you're here. So, the key for conflict, here it is, is what Paul says to say, I am the chief sinner. Wherever you're at, Whatever has been done, your attitude is that you are the worst sinner in the room. And if that is your approach, whether you're the offender, you are the, you're the one that was wrong. If, if your, your approach is on the worst sinner in the room, then that can motivate you to move forward because you're like, well, they just expect me because I'm the worst sinner in the room. But if you're the offended, you can still say, I'm the worst sinner in the room. So no matter what they did to me, I'm still worse than everybody else. So Compared to, to what I did to God, this is nothing. Right? I, I hurt God. I cut God. I despise God a lot more than they did to me. And since he forgave me, it frees me to go to them because I am the worst. I'm the foremost. Right? It's a, it's a freeing idea, and it will revolutionize our conflict if we come in saying, I'm the worst. So whatever's done to me, or I'm the worst. Because we have a great ability as humans and we get it from Adam, our dad, to hang it on somebody else when there's a problem. It is the woman you gave me. It is the snake that talked to her. We do it. We do it with our, it's my wife's fault. It's my parents' fault. They're not fair. It's my brother's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's everybody else's fault. Right? But when I say, no, I'm the foremost... I'm the worst in the room. It's not who's better, who's worse, who's right, or who's wrong. It's no one is going to offend me as much as I've offended God. So I can release. I can do it. And God tells us to do it. I mean, think about how would that, y'all, some of you who are kind of, conflict has been big in your marriage lately. Or some of you teenagers that you can't get along with your parents. Or maybe your boss drives you bonkers. I mean, what kind of, if, you're, if this is how you are as a husband or as a wife, and you're like, man, I'm wrong, and you're owning that, and you're going towards that, and you're, who's not going to ha just have peace? I mean, what, what teenager's not going to trust the dad who's going to be willing to come up and say, honey, I was harsh with you, I'm sorry? Or the boss who says, that was my fault, that the numbers didn't add up, and everyone else, I'm not going to just blame everyone else, I'm going to take that and own that. Who's not going to want to work for that guy? Who's not going to want to respect that husband who says, honey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And, and you can deal with the issue. This is this key for our conflict. And it's, it's, it's mercy that motivates it because you were shown mercy. 
God did not pour his wrath out on you. He poured it out on Christ instead, right? And so maybe there's someone here. I know there's somebody here that you need to move towards somebody that you have not been because you've been not thinking you're the foremost. You've been thinking, I'm the right. I am right. That ain't a question, right? And you need to kind of move as best you can and be at peace with all men because I can promise you, you will never be hurt or hurt someone else as much as we hurt God, all right? Third thing is mercy motivates us to be transparent. Somewhere along the line in the church, we started to believe that our credibility is connected to how good we are. And so what do we do? We pretend we're super good. And we cover, you know, we look nice and we shave and we smell nice and we do all these things to hide the fact that there's brokenness. Paul does not say, my credibility comes from the fact that I am so good. I'm so good. You should listen to me. He says, my credibility comes from the fact that I was bad and God's mercy and God's grace was poured out for me. That's where our credibility is. People are not looking for perfect people. Wives are not looking for perfect husbands. Husbands are not looking for perfect wives. Teenagers, kids are not looking for perfect parents. Employers are not looking for perfect employees. Maybe some are. But the, we, what we're looking for is, is humble and, and honest. People that, that when somebody says, you know, this was wrong, uh, and you can say, you're right. And, and in fact, it's worse than you thought. I'm actually, you think this is it. It's, it's actually more than that. I actually have this too. That there's a, there's a transparency. When we come to a church like this, when we celebrate the table in a few minutes, you are owning the fact that you are a sinner. You recognize that, right? That you, you're already saying, I'm bad. I got huge sin problems. That's, that's kind of where we are. And so we need to I keep, keep reminding us this. It's okay to not be okay. To say, hey, I got this wrong. I'm owning it. Help, you know, I need help in my marriage. Uh, you know, we're, we're fighting. Um, I was this, that was... It's a powerful thing for us to have transparency with each other. And this is especially huge in our community groups, in our families, right? Because his, his grace, his power is made strong in weakness. And so we don't have to hide. We think that hiding actually is helping because then people will actually believe on this and it's actually hurting. Your credibility in the church and beyond doesn't come from your perfection. It comes from, I was this and I was this. And motivate, mercy motivates us to, to be able to do that and to still love each other through that. And then the last thing is this, and we'll do this. Mercy motivates us to worship. Again, Paul, to the immortal, to the invisible. When you think about your story, when you think about his grace, the, the, the result is just worship. Right? It's worship. It should be. You can't, people can't talk about, and if you've experienced grace and, and a change from the inside out, you can't talk about that or think about that and not respond in some sort of worship. All right? Not that we're, it's not that we're coming, oh, I'm so bad. Oh. No, it's, I was this, but look what Christ has done. And so we, it just drives us to worship the immortal, the invisible, the only God, the king of the ages, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Ivan Drago motivates mercy for the church. It's our role. Motivates us to tell our story, to handle conflict be transparent, to own our deal, and drives us to worship. And so we're going to do that, and we're going to celebrate 
we're going to cultivate remembering through, through just remembering the gospel on the table. And so we got some folks that are going to get up and get that ready. And Ethan, you guys can come on up and lead us. And he's, just, these men are just going to hand out the elements. Um, if you are a follower of Christ, that you have experienced his grace and mercy in your life, you've put your faith in the fact that you are a sinner, but Christ paid for your sins on the cross. Uh, whether you're a member or not, we, in, we invite you to celebrate with us, to remember. And as they hand out the elements, just take both the bread. The bread represents the body of Christ, sinless, perfect, right? It's unleavened. Leaven represents sin, often in the scripture. Christ was sinless. This bread is pierced, just like Christ was pierced. This bread is bruised, just like he was bruised for us. And obviously the juice represents the blood of Christ, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so as you take, they're just going to hand it out. You guys just kind of take, and, and while they're singing, after some time of reflection, remember where you came from. Try to cultivate that. And then when you're ready, you take, and then you can join us in singing. Let me pray, and we'll worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel, that what we were is not what we are and what we will be. That Christ, because he was crushed for us and resurrected, we are forgiven and we will be resurrected. And that is our hope. I pray for us as a church, for those struggling with guilt, I mean just guilt and guilt, that they would cast that at the foot of the cross that was sufficient for the sins of all men. I, I pray for those who are crippled by just whatever in the past, that they would see that the Son, who, this, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. And that we could experience forgiveness like Paul and move on. And that mercy would drive us to tell our story. That mercy would drive us to, to have peace and conflict and to be transparent and open where we're struggling and then just to worship. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.